Web3 with me is a discussion style podcast about the ins and outs of Web 3.0, hosted by Zach French, known as Off Edge in the verse. From crypto to NFTs, DAOs to DeFi, we cover the abstract philosophical promises and the new business models enabled in this new decentralized world. Subscribe on your favorite podcast platform or watch the show on YouTube. Thanks and enjoy. Zach French is a bar certified attorney and nothing expressed by Zach during Web3 with me shall be considered legal advice. All the opinions expressed by Zach and his guests are solely their own opinions. All content in Web3 with me is for informational purposes only. Zach and his podcast guests may maintain positions in the securities discussed during Web3 with me. Hey, everyone. Thanks so much for being listeners of Web3 with me. I want to take a few seconds to tell you about my exciting new B2B offering. It is the mission here to educate. I sincerely believe Web3 can make the world better for more people. Businesses shouldn't be left out, though, so I've launched The Web3 Coach. It's a bespoke education experience designed to help your team understand how Web3 affects your particular industry or company and identify opportunities unique to Web3. Whether you have a law or accounting firm with a growing number of clients participating in Web3 through crypto and NFTs, or you're a real estate syndicate looking for different ways to raise money, or teams just of fast-growing Web3 companies who want to understand your customers and your new teammates, I make sure you can talk the talk and leave feeling more confident about this crazy new world. Please take a minute to check out my website at theweb3coach.xyz. Thanks so much and enjoy the show. My guest today is Jeremiah Long. He's a builder in Web3, an NFT archaeologist. He organized one of Atlanta's first Web3 conferences, NFT ATL. He is executive director of Wedge, a nonprofit Web3 education organization with a focus on diversity, inclusion, and representation in the tech space. Jeremiah has worked in product management, television, marketing, production, and branding for over 20 years. This is a great conversation. LFG, baby. Let's start vibing. Welcome to the show, Jeremiah. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you having me on. And just saying that I've been listening to podcasts, been seeing some of the guests, and you know, I'm deep in the blockchain space and the Web3 space, but I learn something every day. And so I really appreciate the work you're doing because I have definitely learned some things by listening to some of your guests. So I appreciate the work you're doing. That's cool. And that's all I want to do every week. It's it's kind of one of those passion projects for me where I am trying to find the people that are participating in Web3, but I also just enjoy learning. So I'm kind of following my own curiosity, which is like kind of all over the place in the space, but uh, I'm glad that you, you find some value there. And I know that you have been instrumental in the Atlanta blockchain community for which I am a, a newer member of. Um, and, uh, you know, I think you founded NFT ATL, which we'll get to, uh, and amongst a bunch of other, uh, amazing projects. So, uh, thanks so much for coming on. Absolutely. Cool. Well, I always like to start these, uh, by letting the audience get to know who you are. Uh, this could be inside web three, outside web three, but you know, what do you consider part of Jeremiah's founding story? Yeah, well, um, I came up with a single mom in section eight housing. I always grew up really poor. Um, I didn't get a chance to go to regular college, but I, you know, I looked at where my path was going and a lot of the paths of a lot of my friends where it came to drugs and uh, violence and just a lot of really hard upbringings. 
And, you know, I decided that I was going to do what I could to help myself and to try to help people that were like me as I was growing up. And so I just started to grind, honestly, just grind. And when it came through Web1, I was over there building websites and um, buying domain names and into Web2 doing social media, social media management. And in my personal career, I was a TV producer for about 15 years on broadcast. And then I moved into launching networks and I've actually started a couple of television networks myself, along with uh, some great other companies and people. And then I moved a little closer into Web3 after that and started getting into cryptocurrency and such like that in 2018. And it's been a pretty wild ride since then, honestly. That's that's really cool. Thank you for sharing that. Um, it's, it's interesting. I, I guess it sounds like you would attribute a lot of your, your drive and your hustle that you've had uh, and being early to these spaces with the way you were, were brought up with not having opportunity. Absolutely. And, you know, I had a mom who is the type that would buy the dictionaries. And uh, one of my favorite early references is this book called The Chronicle of America. And Chronicle honestly tells the entire history of America through newspaper clippings from the beginning of time, essentially, all the way up until when I got the book, which was in the um, in the end of the Reagan era on the beginning of the Bush era. And so I've always been about knowledge and finding resources and the internet really was that first big resource that I was like, oh, well, the things that have been out of people like you know, people that grew up poor, people that don't have a lot of resources, the things that weren't in our hands were mainly knowledge. And the internet opened that up. And then that's one of the things that really fueled my passion into Web3 because now that knowledge is becoming immutable. We're democratizing access to it. So people really can get a hold of the knowledge that they need to, to go somewhere with it if they have you know, people to help them understand how to get towards that and just understand the value of why they should. Yeah, that's really interesting. So who were those people for you early on before like going into Web1? Uh, and like, what were your information sources other than the Chronicles? Oh, man. Uh, I love Stephen Hawking. That was one of my definite like influencers <laughs> for my world early on. Um, as a television producer, um, working in film and TV, I'm a screenwriter, so it's always been about movies and um, entertainment. Um, I was in a lot of bands. So, you know, a lot of my path has been really interesting because I've always thought of myself as multidisciplinary before there was really a word for multidisciplinary or what they call multi hyphenate these days. <laughs> but, you know, my interests always was pulled from different places, which was something I like about decentralization today is, you know, I don't have to be, you know, a single thing. You know, I come from music. I come from film and TV. My first college experience was as a, a computer network systems technology expert. So, you know, I've, I've done a lot of different diverse things. And some of, I think in the old days, they called it a renaissance, man. But these days, you know, I, I think that that's what it is. It's a lot of little touch points um, across a lot of different people. I wouldn't necessarily attribute it to one single influencer or one single person that kind of like turned my head. But you were definitely into the idea of content. You had a, a vast array. Uh, oftentimes, there's a few words that came to mind when you were talking, a polymath being one of them. Um, and then also thinking about, in terms of how you're learning, um, you're, the, the audience that's listening may not be able to see me, but I'm forming a T 
right? <laughs> um, and it's because you have a vast area of knowledge across different disciplines, which is the top of the T. And then you're starting to dig in maybe to a few here and there. And for maybe for you, it's more like a pie or, you know, a T with multiple stems. Um, it sounds like you've gone down a few different paths in terms of, of expert, but that's, that's a really, really cool path to get you to this Web3 uh, amazing space that we're both part of and both big into the media aspect of. So what was kind of your inflection point um, where you were like, oh, no, I need to take this seriously. I need to start planning conferences. Atlanta's going to be the place for this. I'd love to hear that. Yeah, well, I had been, you know, a little more into cryptocurrency in my earlier part of you know, those days. Um, I, I was not part of the first couple of waves of NFTs. Um, I was aware of things like CryptoPunks. I just wasn't aware of how to obtain one, even though I was interested at the time back in 2018. Um, and it's just honestly, just like anyone would tell you, if you look at the history, and we'll talk more about that, I'm sure, is that it wasn't really on a lot of people's radar, you know, like the value of that. But I also am an artist, uh, multidisciplinary in that way too, a 3D generalist, a vector arts, physical arts, um, 3D, of course, and AR. And so as I started to look at the landscape of that in the end of 2019 into 2020, I started to see that you could secure your art digitally. And that was something I'd never heard of. That's what really changed, I think really changed it for me is I just kind of heard stories. I don't have a really specific artist in mind from that earlier part, but I'd heard stories that you could take a piece of digital art and you could actually own it. And that was a concept that I actually was really interested in because I'd seen how easy it is to to take art from someone else, you know, in the digital space and just use it as your own. You'd see over on eBay or Etsy people using people's artwork for their own purposes and not paying back those artists. And I was really interested in seeing if there was some way that I could enter, you know, a space where I could secure and make money off my own art. And that was when I started moving into actually understanding NFTs probably in the end of 2020. And I played a lot on the Flow blockchain. And I think something that I think people forget about is how many people's first NFTs were actually on the Flow blockchain. And that because NBA Top Shot was a very, very a big thing that a lot of people jumped into. And I know so many people that have been so successful in Ethereum as an artist that if you ask them, their first NFTs were actually over on the Flow blockchain. So that was something that I rounded back and started to really understand as something I wanted to understand. But what I just could not understand at all at that time was how Flow worked. So that's when I got into Ethereum because I could understand how to make NFTs on Ethereum. And so in the beginning of uh, 2021, I started minting my own NFTs of my own art. And I'm a journalist and I've worked with a lot of newspapers. And so that became a mission of mine to create art, but to also begin to secure stories. So I did a documentary project that was called The Last NFT in January. And the story goes um, in the early 1900s, the, um, the Niagara Frontier Transit Authority, who made bus tokens for, for taking trips from Buffalo, New York to Niagara Falls, they would use these tokens. And the token is a bus token that says NFT on it. <laughs> and, and when I found that, I, I ran over to eBay and started um, cornering the market on these NFT token, like physical NFT tokens, and then studying the story from Buffalo, New York about how these tokens came about and started uh, putting together a, a documentary. And that was actually one of my first NFT projects was a 3D, I scanned, I, I did a, a photometry 3D scan of a, of a NFT bus token, and I created a digital version of that 
in you know in NFT world. And then I mentioned that over on the Open Sea contract, along with a docu a small documentary that I put together about the how this was the the first NFT, and so I called it the last NFT. <laughs> I love that. As soon as you were like Niagara something trans, I was like, in, oh my, uh, whoa, this is aligning. <laughs> yeah. That is a great narrative. How what, did you uh, promote it in any way? Who who was your first collector? So I have, I've only made a single token, a one of one. And uh-huh. the idea was to do uh, fundraising behind it and such like that. But that token um, never has changed uh, from my wallet hands, but I did move it into my cold wallet. Uh-huh. Um, but that was what informed me into, um, into the space. And then I started seeing kind of the timber of what was going on. And so by in de- late February into March, um, is when I really started to, to understand the Twitter space part of the NFT community. And so I kind of moved around and started just making art that I loved. And then my first actual collectors, um, is a, a music artist. It just happens to be a music artist. And he bought, um, a, it's another interesting side story. Like I, the the Dogecoin was um, trying to figure out ways to be a, a full you know currency so people would use it. And the Oakland A's decided to sell a pair of their uh, baseball tickets in exchange for Dogecoin. And it was the first time that Dogecoin had been used in that way. And so I I bought the tickets, which I had to get my friend. They wouldn't let you buy the tickets unless you actually had a zip code in the area because they didn't want people around the world buying these Doge tickets and no one coming to the game. So I have a friend named Reed Clow. He's an amazing dude. He uh, is a um, a domain squatter of, of sorts from from the OG era, and he um, he let me use his address, so I was able to buy these Doge tickets. But then when they delivered the ticket, it was just a digital ticket. I didn't get a physical ticket in hand oh. i just got a ticket into my into my wallet you know in your in your apple wallet it just popped mm-hmm. up as having the tickets so then i created i went into um i went into my 3d modeling program and i 3d modeled my own ticket and i used all the data off of the ticketing you know like the barcode the the seat numbers and everything and i created a piece of digital art that was my actual ticket to that baseball game and then my first collector actually was someone who who uh, purchased that nft from me that's awesome what a great story i didn't know that the oakland a's were first either i had always i i remember when uh it was publicized that mark cuban was going to start taking dogecoin uh for the mavericks and uh, now he's dealing with legal troubles <laughs> out of that but um people were really trying to make it a currency and i think that that was just trying to prove the use case it wasn't that dogecoin was necessarily the best right but it was that it was the flair of the moment everybody knew what it was and that you could buy real world goods but it's funny because you, it, it also, the way that the Oakland A's handled it, it kind of highlights how a lot of, uh, I won't even call them a web two company, just not web three companies have handled it. It's like they kind of dip their toe in the water, but they don't go the full distance. You know, you're still like your, your end product was still what you would have gotten if you bought a digital ticket on Ticketmaster. Very right? much. Very much. Yeah. So it's, uh, it's funny though, because as these organizations and as the resources available to these organizations are maturing more, mm-hmm. you're starting to see more highly executed end-to-end Web3 strategies, uh, which I find just fascinating. Um, do you have any other interesting stories from your your beginnings as a creator? Because these two have been, <laughs> have been quite riveting. 
Yeah. Um, well, you know, that that particular thing with the with the Doge tickets um, <clears throat> had me really thinking and understanding a, one specific thing and what you were talking about, about how all these companies didn't really have any sort of Web3 strategy. Of course, most still do not. And they barely had even full Web2 strategies at times. But what I what I noticed in the sports world specifically is that a lot of players that played on these professional sports teams, they were early adopters in technology. And so they were lobbying their organizations to try to get in on this. They're like, yo, you know, I, you know, this baseball player from Oakland A's, for example, he's like, I've, you know, I've had cryptocurrency for five years. You've got to get on board with this, you know. So that's where a lot of those initial strategies came out of where players on those individual teams, including, you know, Aku World is like, that's a great example um, of them advocating for their organizations to come up with a Web3 strategy because they started to see in their own personal worlds these changes. So, yeah, I mean, along with that, um, around that same time, I'd been following Gary Vee for quite a while, you know, um, before he made his big shift over to NFTs. I loved he had this um, this PDF he put out that was called How to Make 100 Pieces of Content Per Day. And it was it's a great PDF. I, I encourage anyone to look we'll at share it. it in the show notes. notes. Yeah, we'll definitely share it in the show notes. That one definitely changed my Web2 experience because he showed how to properly repurpose things and how to change the um, the angle on single pieces of content for different platforms to be able to monetize and re-monetize those pieces of content. So I was, I was following him very closely. And as soon as I heard him start to talk about NFTs, I was like, oh man, he's about to tell his millions and millions of highly motivated followers to go towards this. And so I hit him up because <laughs> I just am that type of person. And um, I put his um, Twitter notifications on so that I'd get a bell every time he tweeted. Because, you know, when he tweets, he's tweeting himself from his phone. That's generally what he's doing. So I waited for a strategic moment. And the, min- the second that he tweeted, I immediately was like, hey, NFTs, DMing you right now. And he actually answered. And that that moment of validation because we didn't it didn't go very far basically i said something about you know hey i've got this i'm, I'm into nfts you know working on this he said oh that's awesome man that's you know i love what you're doing you know keep me informed and that was basically you know like it, it we didn't keep it up at that moment but that inspiration and that validation you know at that moment you know not that i need gary v's validation or that anybody does but it was really is interesting to see that Back in the old Twitter world, when you could like hit up a celebrity and you could talk to celebrities, that was what's so cool about Twitter back in the early days. I felt those vibes again. And I was like, oh, the NFT community is tight and it's small and you can go direct to your to people that you really feel are important. And we're just all trying to figure it out, including people like him. We're just all in this together. It was wag me like crazy. So wag me, of course, uh, we're all going to make it. So when I, when I found that, I, I just went knee deep and I started making every type of NFT art I could find that I started collecting NFTs. I had um, moved on away from cryptocurrency at that time, but I had done okay in Doge. So I just shifted everything towards that. And then I started just like making sure I understood the underlying technology as well as I could, because I am an early adopter. And it's something I really wanted to do was to, you know, to really be a part of this space. And so, yeah, a lot of that happened. And I, I made so many small like NFT projects, you know, that no one has ever seen. Most of them never sold. A lot of it was just about sharing and, and engaging. And then not too long after that, um, over on the counterparty 
blockchain uh, system, which is the uh, the Bitcoin NFT platform. Um, I was sitting in this Discord that's called NFT Archaeology, and this guy late at night was like, "Hey, I found the guy who has." the original test token that they minted. It was the very first token ever minted on the counterparty blockchain when they, when they launched it, it was literally the test token. It's called test. And he minted that. And it just set, you know, it's at dormant since 2015 in his wallet. No, sorry, 2014 since January the 13th, 2014 in his wallet, because he's the, he was the original dev. And this guy was like, Hey, you know, can we, can you put some in, um, a quick aside on the encounter party, you set up what's called a dispenser to receive NFTs. And what you do is you send a certain amount, whatever the dispenser says, you send that amount of uh, Bitcoin to the dispenser and it automatically dispenses the NFT to you. It's a very different system than what we think of in, in um, Ethereum. But that night, he put 30 of those test tokens in a dispenser. And you should have seen me trying to create the proper free wallet to get it, exchanging over um, what little bit of you know Doge or Sheeb or something I had over into some Bitcoin because I didn't really hold Bitcoin just so I had enough and just rushing over there because it's these dispensers are first come first serve. And if it wasn't for the community being absolutely tiny at the time, there's no way I would have got one of those 30 tokens. But I managed in the middle of the night to acquire one of the test tokens, which to some in some people's regard is the first NFT because it was actually transferable and ownable. And ever since then, it's been quite a ride as well in that regard, because, I mean, there's a test discord just for people who own the test token. And there's um, there are about there are about 300 and some 50 of us, I think, at this point, because there were originally a thousand tokens and they burnt 800 of the to- or somewhere around there. They burnt. They burnt like 600 of the tokens. I think there are 400 left. So yeah, it's a very widely distributed token. All Almost all crypto and, and NFT and Bitcoin OGs, rare Pepe OGs, stuff like that. And th- that community has been so welcoming that it even opened up more doors for me. And it's it, it probably changed the path that I was going on in my NFT career then as well. That's so interesting. I don't like, definitely one of the most unique early experiences that I've ever heard, but also... Uh, if you abstract it for what actually happened uh, and just look at what you had to do to get it, that those activities, otherwise known as degenning, uh, when you're frantically in the middle of the night on Discord, trying to open a wallet, trying to go to a decentralized exchange, take your cryptocurrency, switch it out. We've most people that have been in this space for longer than a month or two have done that. Uh, <laughs> and that is so authentically Web three. Thank you for sharing that. Yes, so I, admit, I admittedly have degen pretty hard yeah, at times. Yeah. I, I think uh, anybody who has bought or sold, almost anybody who's bought or sold an NFT has had that because yeah. uh, while it does lead to some poor decisions, like I'm not here to act like degening is always the greatest thing ever. Um, it also it like caters to our human nature, right? In a way. And, and it may not be the most positive side of it, but what it did is it like it it creates almost like a hyper focus for you, right? right? Where you're like, I have to get this thing. Um, and uh, if you can control it, uh, there are a lot of good experiences that come out of it. There's there's bad experiences, but there's a lot of good experiences. A lot of the people that I've met, we've shared that same feeling going for like the... Um, 
the um the the land drop from the apes right like everybody was in the voice chat at like whatever pm it was and just like are we gonna get it or are we not gonna get it did you get your ape did you exchange for your ape coin i mean it's it, it is it's a shared experience that does form a bond for sure absolutely yeah and you know in that same regard you know, in the degenning era, I remember when gas was really high, like um, in the spring of 21 and like gas was running like 200 plus bucks for a transaction. Sometimes I was paying more gas than for the actual mint sometimes. And so, you know, on a, in a, you know, I'm sitting there and I'm looking, you're trying to analyze. So then you go, you find your forever NFT in that collection. You go to buy it from secondary market before Things get out of control and you can't afford it because you've only got so much you can work with. You see the gas. It's $350. And then I hit reject on my forever board ape. Uh, yeah. And three times. Three three times? Three times oh. that week. And then the next week is when Dingaling TS swept the 0. 0.3, 0. 0.3 floor of, of board apes and we never look back. Wow, that's crazy. I've I've got a similar not not quite to that point. I have a similar story. I've I had a, a friend of mine, my mentor in the space, Ah Heck is what he goes by, but his real name's Josh Sobel. He's he's fully doxxed. Um, he w was given a board ape by a friend of his because his friend said you need to have one of these, and I just minted like twenty of them. Mm -hmm. uh, and then he proceeded to reach out to me and say, listen, when, when my other friend Jack is talking, like I listen and he gave me this board ape, mm -hmm. they're already at half an ETH floor. You should go get one. And I'm like, and at this point, I mean, to put it in a context for the audience, April, May was a, was a mini bear market for NFTs. Yeah. Um, people at that point, Nifty Gateway was king. I would say they had the, yeah. the highest transaction volume because you could just sign up with a credit card. They had onboarded a ton of people, including myself. Uh, and you know, all of a sudden this open sea, uh, craze comes and they're like, Oh, you know, you've got to mint this PFP of a monkey. And you're like, exactly what people think now that don't know anything of NFTs. You're like, I'm not going to do that. But they had this great narrative that I didn't put enough trust into, which is that we are the people that were left out of being early into crypto punks. Right. And it really caught on and now has obviously blown up. I think everybody knows what board apes are now if you don't live under a rock. Mm -hmm. um, so I got dominated that once. Then I got dominated again. They were about six or seven ETH. And he was like, listen, man, if you can trade and get into one of these, you need to do it. And I started searching and I ended up buying a fake ape that time just because I wasn't quite sure what I was doing. I think mm -hmm. I still have it. I might have hidden it so no one saw it. But. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then the mutant apes came out and the mutant apes came out and I was like, this is great. They did the Dutch auction. They sold. They, I think they, the point that I was, I ended up selling a, a pack piece uh, for about oh, six nice. ETH. And, um, and I was like, all right, I'm going, I'm going shopping. I'm finding a mutant ape. I'm getting my way in. I, I was up late at night, like trying to find the, late, the coolest one. I finally found one with a headband, which I really liked because I'm a runner. And I was like, it just, even though it's a sushi headband, like I just liked it. Right. Like I felt like it was my vibe. It had the vest, which I liked. I had this thing going with my forever PFPs where I was yeah. buying all the vests because I'm kind of a tech bro. <laughs> and, and I click, you know, or uh, you know, sign sign the message. Starts loading, and I'm like, "Oh crap! Am I not going to get this? Am I not going to get this?" I took a screenshot, mm. and I was like, I'm, "I'm getting one," and I sent it to somebody, and her transaction failed. Oh, Someone had grabbed it just before me, and by the time I found another one, 
I was sitting with my wife and she's like, are you going to spend $25,000 on a picture of a monkey? And I was like, mm, you're right. And I didn't. And I ended up buying like a one ETH here, a one ETH there. And you know, I probably should have held on to it. But um, it is, man. It's, it's a story of being in the space and getting dominated, but sticking through it, right? Absolutely. Like understanding that it's more than the immediate good investment that you just made or good speculation that you just made about a particular collection. Absolutely. And I think, too, another... You know, when you're that deep, the stories that come out of that, and that's something I think, you know, uh, I was at VCon in May, and that's something that Gary talked about a lot was the stories that will come out of this are bonds with with people that you can never replicate, you know, like 10 years from now, we'll all talk about how, like for me, I was I was more of like a hash mask um, maxi at the time when Board Apes came out. And Hashmask had its own problem. It was a FOMO ramp. Like each one cost more up until the final one costed 50 Ethereum, I think. Like you could, and, and until someone bought the last one, they weren't going to roll the uh, the chain link to see which ones you got. They weren't going to reveal until it sold out. And then the other part of Hashmasks is every single day you receive 10 NCT tokens, which are uh, the name change token. So I was like- That was just airdrops. You weren't staking it or anything. It's a soft stake every single day. Uh, I get it, and um, yeah, and my three my three hash mask each day. I still get it for the next ten years or for the next eight years. Now um, the NCT will continue continue to um, emanate from my hash masks, and then it becomes deflationary after that. So I loved the story, and of course the 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 utility of the name change token is that you have to use that token to change the name of your hash mask. It's the name change token. And so you have to have 1,800 name change tokens to, and you burn those tokens and then you're allowed to, and you change your name permanently on chain for your hash mask. And, you, and each name has to be unique. So those stories and that interesting tech part of it where it was a, an actual utility token and it was dropped to you every single day, I was like, why would this not be the most like – and it was – you know, it's like 40 anonymous artists around the world came together to create the traits for that collection and like – we still today don't know exactly who they all are, but we've started to figure out that some of the traits are by some pretty big NFT artists. And so it's like the story and the narrative was just so engrossing. And I love storytelling. So I was like, you know, almost clouded by how amazing the stories were. And I think that a lot of us have got like the narratives and what was so interesting about these communities. And when you're in the discords and you're, you're just vibing with people and you're just, you're meeting cool people. And I've made some incredible, I made some of the best connections in my life just through these web three communities and through discords and Twitter. Some of the coolest people I've met on, uh, in, uh, NFT Twitter, I've still don't know who they are officially, you know, cause I've, I've always been doxxed, but, um, most of them are not, you know, and even some people that I've ended up meeting at, like VCon, for example, a lot of the side parties, like the after parties, had people come up to me and with the like subtle like shake my hand. It's like okay, and he's like, "I'm so and so." It's like, oh, <laughs> dude, and they never would have guessed, you know, you never would have guessed, and you know, and it's, it's unnecessary to guess because their online identity is what I knew and know and found intriguing about them. And that's something that really made me think about where I've started to take my career in Web3 since then, because I didn't care about their immutable traits. I didn't care about how tall they were, how short they were, what their background was, their ethnicity, their whether they're rich or poor. The only thing I cared about was how cool they were, you know, and like how, how much of a vibe they were, you know, and how friendly and giving or knowledgeable. Those were the things. It was their brain. Their brain was the only thing I knew about them. 
And so that's one thing that I think has been a real big like leveling of the field in Web3 is big brains are big brains, you know? It's, it's beautiful. Honestly, we, uh, on my last episode, actually, um, we, we went on a riff for the first 20 minutes. We didn't even get to the founding story question <laughs> because we talked about the power of Web3 starting as like a default either anon or pseudo anon, right? Mm-hmm. Um, there is power in that. There are so many different use cases. Is that to say that you should always be either doxed or not? I don't think so. But what it does do is when you get to know somebody without knowing what they look like, like you said, like knowing their immutable characteristics, right? Mm-hmm. And then you get to know them just by typing. So you don't even know tone necessarily, mm-hmm. but then you meet them in person. There's something in that gap from going, hey, I just know you by what you and I have talked about, not even the tone, not how loud you are, not what you look like, to now I know what you look like and all this stuff. And it doesn't freaking matter, <laughs> right? It didn't matter. Like it's even if we don't want to have kind of those like assumptions when we meet somebody, we all do, right? We all yeah, do based on our personal experiences. But mm-hmm. in Web3, that gets erased. And whether it's because of the pictures of various animals that we purchase and happen to be in a community together with, or the various activities or narratives around there, the bottom line is that we're making friends solely for who people are, not what they look like. That's right. That's right. I totally agree with that. And that was one of me, my first, um, the first non-wag me vibe I ever remember in the NFT space was after the last, the, not this last uh, NFT NYC, but the one before that. Mm-hmm. And just how many... Um, let's say the, the, I, I would call it a lot of the Bernie bros that moved over to be in crypto bros. Like mm-hmm. they were like, man, I can't believe how short so many, this person is, or this person. I was like, that was your takeaway. That was your big takeaway is the height of the person that you revered as being one of the thought leaders in the NFT space that you now feel like you are they're They're not as powerful. They're not as cool. They're not as interesting or smart because of their height. And I was like, oh, so, I mean, human nature started starts to creep in at times, but I do feel like we still have this huge opportunity in Web3 to level that playing field. And it's definitely where my mission has come from since then. Well, yeah, man, I, I totally agree with you. I just, I have found such good, true, long-term friends um, by virtue of either collecting their works or collecting the same works together. Um, and then born out of those, this second stage, this bear market we're going through is what I'm starting to notice. We use, I used an analogy on my last podcast I really like is that when the NFT craze happened, we were all in a room together and we didn't know like what was going on. We were like kind of running around like crazy, trying to find the right door to open, what have you. But then the bear market happened and the walls start to close in, but the doors become unlocked. Right. And you have to pick a path or else you're gone. Right. Um, And some of those people, the path was a permanent exit. Right. Which is totally cool. And maybe they shouldn't have been in it to begin with. But a lot of people that you go through these same doors with, whether you're tapping into your local community, you're tapping into a nonprofit that you started like you have or, you know, just about making new friends. Maybe you want to have a media company like me where you just want to promote the good word of Web3. But like now we're all in those second rooms together and we're starting to get to know each other on a personal level. And I think this is where the real building will happen. Yeah, no, I totally agree there because as 
you know, a self-styled NFT archaeologist, when I look back on the waves that I missed of NFTs and the crypto world and things like that, you know, the same thing happened in 2018 when the when Ethereum went from like $1,800 down to $300 in the course of like four or five weeks or not even that. I think it was even faster than that. And so many people got burnt so bad that they exited. And so many people didn't see the the liquidity and the flipping and the day trading available to them that they exited. And a lot of those people never came back. But the people who did stay, they really doubled down and they started truly building. And there's no, like board apes, um, hash masks, all the all of the a lot of the really great projects that really define 2021. They didn't just come up with this on a whim after the Beeple announcement. They've been they were working on that through 2020. Mm-hmm. And they were really thinking, okay, eventually, and it'd been two years of Ethereum never coming back. When Ethereum dropped to three hundred dollars, it never came back it, for two years for people. And so there was no there was no way to know it would ever come back. But other people, some people were thinking they're thinking, you know, if I keep building on this, it's not going away. I can innovate and I can also innovate without the pressure of random people trying to get upside crawling up my butt every 10 seconds asking me for an announcement, a FOMO announcement that's going to send us to the moon. Where's the roadmap? (laughs) The roadmap is long. No one wanted to hear that. And so so those people, they really built. And so it's been really interesting to see that. And that's another big thing that, you know, I've done as an empty archaeologist is seeking out devs who had made interesting projects back in 20 between 2015 and 2018 mainly and seeing, Hey, what happened? You know, why did you decide to stop developing this or what, you know, was the, you know, what, what was the story of what did happen during this? Cause sometimes you'll see that these, some of these projects were incredibly popular at the time that they were popular. And then, you know, everything went, down and changed or modified or the technology even changed sometimes and it's it's a very different story from uh from dev to dev a lot of times why they just made the decisions they did and a lot of those devs like pax is a good example too they were more committed to continuing and doing big stuff in their early careers you know than 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 exiting they were like no this is where i'm staying and ri- i'm ride or die web 3 even though no one what knows what web 3 i had somebody ask me you know and then i was a meeting just yesterday it was a meeting yesterday a whole group of uh, um of uh, teachers and they were like we just want to be honest we had to look up what web 3 means and and so i was like man though if if we're still that early now it must have been a very very interesting time earlier. You had to have incredible conviction to stay in the space at a certain point in the last few years. I mean, what a great segue! Uh, <laughs> one of the questions I ask all my audience uh, that I've slowly morphed over time is: originally, it was how do you define Web three? But you know, definitions are they by by purpose need to be the same thing over and over. And I think. Most people, if you look at my playlists on YouTube, can figure out what Web 1 was read, and then Web 2 is read-write, and Web 3 is read-write-own. And I don't want to discount that. That is a great visualization and kind of really does identify what it is. But I would rather ask you, and I'm, I'm asking this moving forward, how do you describe Web 3 to people that have no idea what it is? Well, I, I do You know, I do like that whole read-write-own idea of it. But I think what, what really defines it when – because I speak to a lot of groups that are just 
getting into it, just understanding they still need to understand what an NFT, a blockchain is, a smart contract, the most basic terms. So when I talk to them about what Web3 means, I usually relate it to them in a I try to tell them like this. There are these things, cookies, that track your movements online in the Web2 world. And cookies have been really useful. They, they, they feed you, you know, ads that appear to be um, aligned with what you want. They're always trying to predict what it is that they can, you know, help you with. Some websites change completely based on these cookies. But what a cookie is is still something that the company is, is producing and owning and you're owning your data. Whereas a, the online identities we're able to form with Web3 are our own identities that we project outward. And those identities, you know, whatever information you decide to share and what information you decide to put out there, it's actually controlled by you. So in the future, as we develop all these pieces of Web3 and get closer and closer, you'll be able to decide whether any website gets to know your name or not. You'll be able to decide if they see your age, what age you decide to tell them, and it will all be in there. And what, what becomes accountability with that is if you say that you're a 75-year-old woman and you've minted that in some way into your wallet and that is the identity you put forward then if it becomes if it's important like a government related thing then you're going to need to you know you're, it's going to be a need to be a provable thing that you're a 75 year old woman and not just your what you can do with cookies which is which is spoof them and fake it and do what you want with it you know so you could choose in the future not to share that information but you could also choose to share it provably and immutably so that you know for sure this is actually a 75-year-old woman and not a guy in, you know, in the Midwest somewhere trying to scam someone as a 75-year-old woman. Because mm-hmm. we'll decide, and, and this is part of the, you know, the ethos that we'll all have to navigate together, and this is something that we're all answering, these are questions we're all answering right now, is what will we do to define our online identities and how important is it to to have a provable authentic identity that's immutable i don't have to have a piece of paper in my pocket i can literally be looked up and my information is available anywhere in the world immutably and provably that it's actually me and we'll have to start defining and deciding what what risks that carries and what advantages that carries so that's what i love about it is when I explain Web3, the most simple way it is, I say it's your online identity and you get to decide what you share. I, I love that. And I love to build on it a little bit because on top of what people, you know, one of the things in Limelight is this personal, uh, personally identifiable information or personal information that these companies have, have owned and been able to use at their beck and call in uh, Web3 is, is helping solve that. But then on top of that, one of the things inherent in what you're talking about is like, if you claim to be this person, however you identify yourself by age or whatever, and then you do certain things, maybe you buy certain things, maybe you sell certain things, maybe you create certain things, that's now immutably minted on the blockchain, that's right. right? And so you are not what you've done in the past, where you went to school, uh, what companies you've been a part of necessarily. You become... What did Jeremiah do yesterday? And what has he done for the past year? Yeah, Because it looks like he's been logging into his MetaMask consistently for 
two years, he must at least spend a lot of time in this space. And then what does that teach you about Jeremiah versus what Jeremiah looks like? Yeah. Right. Or what Facebook pages he interacts with and stuff like that. Yeah. I love that idea because I've, I've, I've preached that idea before web three was even a thought is like, you know, because a lot of people for jobs get screened out based off where they went to school, what experience they had, and not necessarily how good they would be at the job. And to those people's, uh, you know, just to, to empathize with the people who are hiring, like, I understand you got to have a system, right? Of some sort. All right. But and like, I think one of the best analogies I've ever heard on this, a quick aside, my old boss, um, she would say, she would say, you know, hiring somebody and interviewing them is like taking them to coffee and then getting married, <laughs> you know, whereas, you know, if, if, if you advance, if we advance to a more, I guess, digitally uh, advanced society where you own things and all of this is tracked on the blockchain and how you interact with people is, is somehow recorded in a way that is useful, right? And you own who get or you decide who gets to own that. All of a sudden, people know what you've done as opposed to, you know, where you've been and, and stuff like that. It's just so much more valuable. I agree. And it reminds me of when I, um, when I was a television producer and I would do my uh, yearly review the whole purpose of those reviews is for me to try as best I can to prove that I am as close to perfect as possible and for the person on the other side of the table to prove how imperfect I am. That's where That was our two jobs. And why, why would you put each other in a position where your job as someone I work for your company and your job is to find cracks in my armor and my job is to, is to hide any cracks that exist? You know, like that is not a great system. And it's just like you were saying, when it comes to employment, there's, I applied for a million corporate uh, TV jobs. You know, I wasn't super happy at certain points with the, uh, with the, you know, the network I was working with. So I started applying for other places, right? Well, my first uh, degree was in computer network systems technology from ITT Technical Institute, and it was an associates of applied science. You can throw that degree in the garbage. And so guess what happened when I applied for any job? A computer threw that in the garbage. <laughs> and a it didn't matter that I'm really good. <laughs> yeah. or, or it didn't matter who you were. Right. Right. It didn't matter what you'd done. Um, and, and, you know, maybe Web3 isn't the catch-all solution for making that a thing, but it's certainly better than what we have now. It's um, definitely a different system. And we're, we are so early that I think that we'll get to start defining that system. And I think it's that's one of the reasons I think it is so important that we do so much education around this, because if we don't, some other group, a crypto, a Walmart of crypto, for example, will make those decisions for all of us. And that's why it is so very important that people make those decisions and come into the space, because if they don't, corporate interest eventually will out spend us all in development or whatever. And one day, and this is um, something a lot of thought leaders have thought about, we'll give away our our custody of our crypto. We'll give away our digital identities for convenience and security purpose because we just don't understand. You know? And that, I don't want to understand. Don't want to understand. And I think that there there will be it there's not everybody's gonna want the autonomy that Web3 grants you. Um, I think the the important thing for at least for me to focus on uh, i won't speak for you you can say whether you agree or disagree is that the people that do lean into it they're going to create amazing new things and i don't want to and i'm using things intentionally like i i 
I don't know what everything that is going to come out of Web3 is going to be, but I do know that there's a certain realignment of incentives that is only possible because of Web3. And part of that is immutably securing some sort of identity based on the actions you've taken, yeah. right? Uh, and for the audience that is listening that may not be as familiar with MetaMask and all these projects we've talked about, that you can go to a website called etherscan.io and you can look at my wallet, public wallet address. Anybody can see my public wallet address or Jeremiah's and you can see every single transaction that's ever happened inside that wallet. Every single buy, every single sell, every single transfer, all of that, every single exchange. And while it right now currently exists in mostly the transaction of cryptocurrency and NFTs as, you know, these these fungible tokens versus these non-fungible, most of it art uh, or maybe entrance into a, a different DAO or something like that. What happens when we start to apply, you know, a chain link oracle to some sort of outside activity and mint that on the blockchain? I think those are where the really cool use cases will come out. Absolutely. And I, I see that a lot, especially in verticals. Um, one of the things that I do in my nonprofit is we talk to uh, uh, venture capital and private oh, equity. Can, I, can yeah. we um, take a step back? I, sure. I've never got to share with the audience. What are you doing right now? I know you've done a lot and we got to hear about it all. Can you tell us more about the nonprofit and the, the conference that you started and, and all this? Absolutely. Very interested. Yeah, and it's the nonprofit developed out of the conference. And so in December of 21, I wanted to get into the real life part of my Atlanta world because I had been behind the computer just degening and just hanging and hanging out with crypto Twitter people for so long. And I was thinking to myself, there have to be a bunch of us here in Atlanta. And then I met one person from Atlanta and, I was, and they were telling me that, um, and I think it was Shahar who uh, runs the Babylon Web3 Academy. And he'd been doing meetup groups for all the, through the pandemic, uh, in the pandemic and then all through 2021. And when I talked to him, I was like, okay, so there is, there is a whole community here, but most of us are just still behind the computer. So I got with um, a great partner um, at Roll Call Theater at Pont City Market, which is a, a very established place. People know where that's at in Atlanta. And I came up with the idea of doing NFT ATL which, you know, for me at the time, I was very focused on NFT and NFT technology specifically at the time, um, or I probably would have called it Web3 ATL. Shout out to, uh, to, to Georgia Tech. But um, I, you know, I put that conference together and then we launched that conference in early February and it was a two day conference. Um, all speakers um, that were underrepresented um, people of color, people that come from diverse backgrounds, people that are under, underrepresented because they're just they're poor or they haven't made it quite into the successful part of the space, even though they're in the NFT space. And we launched this specifically to try to get people to come out. And I was super impressed. Honestly, I was very impressed by my community. We had over 80 people per day on the two different days. And for a conference that, you know, was put together, you know, in just a, just a couple of months, I think it, we, we had nine weeks to put it together. And by the time I put it together, I had already heard about some more conferences that were on the way after that, including Render ATL and NFT ATL Con, which is more of a, a business kind of conference that was um, created by Nia Simone and some other conferences. And then the two weeks before my conference, I found out about 
the uh, Atlanta Underground having um, a Web3 portion of their conference on, on the Wednesday. They're calling it ATL NFT. And um, <laughs> we were there. We all emerged. We were all thinking around the same lines. So a lot of people came to mine, and then I started coming to theirs. But then going to all those, going to that, and going to those conferences, and then I went to VCon, I went to Consensus, NFT, AT, or NFT NYC, and a lot of those conferences. And I started to really realize that exact thing we were talking about, that if we, when I did NFT ATL, I set a mission for myself. I said, I have 12 months to get my local in-person Atlanta community into this space before something comes out of the woodwork because things change so fast. I'm like, I'm in 12 months, I know something's going to come out of the woodwork that'll either make it harder to get into this or it'll make it more corporate, or it won't have that ethos of Web3 that I, I love so much. So then I just sprint, started sprinting. And I found um, at my conference, I found my CEO, and we launched a 501c3, which we're calling Wedge Incorporated. And Wedge is a 501c3 that is all about Web3 education, especially about getting underrepresented and vulnerable groups into the space. And that's specifically because I want to find these amazing, talented people that normally would have been on the, the, the last side of coming into Web3 technology 10 years from now. I want them to get into the technology and give them every opportunity to learn, grow, and become entrepreneurs in the space now so that when normies, as we say, when normies enter the space sometime next year or the next year after that, the thought leaders out of Atlanta are this kid I know who has cerebral palsy and this, this um, you know, women in the space that are just amazingly talented and they know so much more than I do, even at this point, about anything I've ever learned about it. But the other people that I would talk to be like, oh, who is that? I was like, those are the, those are the thought leaders. Those are the people you're going to be turning to to figure this out a year from now. And finding those, and finding and identifying those people, and then figuring out if they need help with technology, if they need help with entrepreneurship, if they need help with connections, and providing those. Yeah. If uh, listen, audience, uh, as big as you are, you've got to know some people that fall into those categories because there are so many stories of uh, people working at Pizza Hut and but creating digital art on the side that created nft collections and they blew up right like it it's not necessarily about making a quick buck it's about taking the thing that you're passionate about and providing an opportunity that you would otherwise never have i mean even the well-to-do people in these in this space that may have not been underrepresented may be in the majority class they they're those people as digital artists were still not fully appreciated. They were still at the behest of certain corporations and all that. And now they have a level of autonomy, but how can we take that level of autonomy and expand it to the people that didn't know about that opportunity? I think it's a, it's a beautiful thing. I actually met uh, a friend at Staples. Uh, I was getting something printed there for one of my first uh, art pieces uh, that I made like fine. Uh, I wouldn't call it fine art because it's, uh, it's physical art. Um, and, um, and he was like, yeah, man, like, he's like, he's like, Oh, you're making this like as part of like a NFT thing. And I'm like, not this in particular, but like, I love to draw. He goes, I'm a digital artist. And he started to show me his art. And I was just like, man, like you gotta be in this space. And like, I, I'll admit I've, I kind of fell out of touch with him, but I still follow him on Instagram. And like, 
his art vibes, man. It's a good, it's good art. But yeah. getting people like that to understand, hey, it's not such a big barrier to go mint an NFT, right? Do you have a, do you have a JPEG file? You can go yeah. mint it on OpenSea right now. Now, do you want to do that forever because they own your contract? Probably not, but it's always a good way to get started. My That's last right. guest, um, he was a photographer. His name's DK. He was part of the early We Accept Ash movement. And his everybody's like, oh, you're in. He was in there as an investor, blah, blah, blah. But they knew he was a photographer. Like, when are you going to mint your works? And like one day he was like, you know, I'm just going to try it. And he minted like, I don't know how much it was, maybe five or six pieces on OpenSea and went to sleep and woke up and they were all sold out. Awesome. I mean, it's just those types of stories should not be few and far between. They should be more common because yeah. anybody with a computer in front of them can participate in Web3, participate in commerce, become a DAO contributor. Um, there's just so many different ways to, to help people earn outside of going to rack up student deck at a technical college or even a full mm -hmm. college or a graduate school or stuff like that. And that's not to say that you don't need that stuff. But let's just say there's other paths now, right? Uh, and I'm a big per, uh, proponent for educational reform, uh, which we won't get into on the podcast <laughs> at the top of the hour. But, you know, maybe that's for a future thing. But, you know, I want to let you know, Jeremiah, in public on this show, I'm here to support you. I am an educator. I am here to spread the good word of what this space is creating, a how this space is creating a better future. Um, so I appreciate what you're doing, man. It's, it's been awesome to get to learn about it. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. And I really I, appreciate too, like the, uh, the type of interviews you're doing, you're going far reaching. I've noticed that you don't just stay within just DeFi or just, you know, it's broad based. And I, I really believe that's, that's the kind of work we need is that multi, that multi hyphenate work that, you know, comes across because every, every facet and every vertical of our lives will most likely be touched by web three over time. And so that is important for people to realize that this isn't a narrow thing that just has to do with art. It doesn't just have to do with decentralized finance. It has to do with everything. Yeah, it does. It does. And that doesn't mean it's a solution for everything. Mm -hmm. What it means is that there are certain aspects of the way that we live our lives that can be improved by the technology that is, you know, subject to Web3, right? Maybe that's how you want to put it. But um, we are, since we are near in the top of the hour, I do want to go ahead and ask my traditional closing question for you, which is, um, where do you see yourself and Web3 in the next six to 12 months? We'll call that the short term. Um, and then where do you see yourself in Web3 in the next five to 10 years? And feel free to be as outlandish as possible with that. Oh, right? yeah. <laughs> well, um, I definitely feel like the whole idea of us living in virtual worlds more often, the metaverse or whatever we call it, I think that's going to become a real centric part of how a lot of people get together. Me personally, in the next six months, I am personally, I have a huge passion for media and newspapers and and historic archives. And so I'm building a large scale DApp with the Flow blockchain with Dapper Labs that has to do with securing historic archives and such that were never properly put into the digital space. So you'll hear a lot more about that coming up in the next few months as we launch. And beyond that, I really feel like what will happen soon is IDs and digital identities like through governments will become blockchain oriented in some way. I don't know if it'll be on a private blockchain. I don't know if it'll be on a US blockchain or what it'll be. But some will have to be. <laughs> yeah, definitely. But I do believe that we'll start to secure those things in a way that's very public. 
Um, I believe that cryptocurrency will start to change and that we will start to use more cryptocurrency truly as a utility token and not so much for speculation because I do believe that the US dollar is the backbone of crypto. And if you go and you think about how we think of how much a cryptocurrency is worth, it's worth an amount of US dollars. And because of that, I believe that what Circle is doing with USDC is honestly slept on and should be thought of more because USDC being a, a digital currency, they don't use the term stablecoin. Um, because of that, I, I would say that they're going to do some impressive things that have to do with centralized, government, regulated, a lot of the things we don't love in the, in the Web3 ethos. I think they are actually doing right over there. So I feel like it's important to think about what will happen over there. But I do think that no matter what happens, that cryptocurrency itself will begin to normalize over the next few years and it won't be so volatile in the mainstream. People will always speculate on utility tokens, but I really feel like that's what will be happening. There will be people speculating on utility tokens, but normal people will essentially still be using a digital version of US dollars and other international currencies in a very similar way to the way we use them now with normal currency. I, I agree wholeheartedly. And what it's going to take is that lack of friction, right? That's, right? That's one of the biggest barriers to entry and why we are still so early and why you're still having to explain, or I'm still having to explain Web3 to the vast majority of people uh, is that it is just either too risky or too complicated for other people to get in, or they feel like, hey, you know, like it's, it's fake, right? Because they read the news and the news doesn't have you know, people that are, are speaking about the true use cases. So I, I agree. And, and we'll both be here for the long run. I can tell you that much. Absolutely. Um, yeah, man. I appreciate you coming on the show. And I look forward to the relationship that we're going to build over the years, being big advocates for Web3 in Atlanta and worldwide, right? Because there's no geographic barriers for no Web3. Barriers. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So thank you a lot for that, too. And then for all the audience, too, feel free to reach out to me. I'm on LinkedIn. My name is Jeremiah Long. I love to talk about these things. No one wants to waste anybody's time. But what I do feel like is that if we all do give a little time, and like a lot of people say, we give 51%, then there's a lot of opportunity for us to all find each other here. And the last thing I would say is that the coolest things in Web3 in the past and the future have not even been tapped yet. And there is a lot of opportunity. No one has missed the boat. There's still amazing opportunities in web three cool man well thank you and that is the truth i second that there has never been a better time to learn and you can learn for free um there are plenty of courses out there whether you want to be a dev or a marketer or what have you uh, in web three so thanks man thanks thanks for joining web three with me make sure to follow us on youtube spotify and apple podcasts also, if you enjoyed the show, please leave us a review as it'll help us reach more people. If you want to connect with me personally, you can find me on Twitter at offedge underscore. Thanks for vibing in the verse with me and hope you'll join us next time.